I mentioned that there is a theme of uh, worship running through this service, and so we read a passage that gives us a description of uh, worship in heaven, first of all, from Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. Revelation 15, verses 1 to 4. I'll make a comment about this during the course of the sermon as well, about the uh, heavenly worship. Verse 1. Chapter 15, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before thee. For thy righteous acts have been revealed. In a somewhat uh, similar vein, if you turn to Acts chapter 2, and we find the church worshipping there after the death and resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of his spirit, and we get a picture of the worship at that point. I'll read from verses 36 in Acts 2 through to verse 47. The text for the sermon is verses 42 to 47, and then I'll read from the Westminster Confession, chapter 21, article 5. Acts 2 from verse 36. Just to um, pick up the end of Peter's uh, sermon. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ This Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, our text, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. 
And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Then also, if you would uh, look, I I don't know if it's inside the bulletin, I haven't checked that, but uh, if it is there, or if you have another copy, the Westminster Confession, chapter 21 and article 5. This is the chapter on worship and the Sabbath, and article 5 gives us a, uh, an indication of the elements of worship. The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Beside religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in an holy and religious manner. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us to value more and more the time that you have set aside for us to worship you in a corporate way, as an assembly, the day of rest and gladness that sets us free to do that, and your work within us that makes us desire to do so. Father, will you make us watchful for the devil's snares as he seeks to take from us the benefits from this day of worship and rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, uh, perhaps you felt this over the last couple of weeks that it is uh, good to be worshipping with unlimited numbers again. Not the first time we've said that over the last uh, couple of years, but uh, perhaps you've had the sense of that more strongly again over the last couple of weeks. And let us hope and pray that it may remain that way. But uh, there is a concern that many of churches have, not just here but around the world, and it's a concern that we find uh, in our Reformed Churches of New Zealand, expressed by some of the other office bearers around the country, I'm sure. And that is the concern that after lengthy lockdowns and restrictions, uh, the question, what effect is that going to have upon our members? What effect has that had upon our members? What effect has it had upon you? Uh, Will some of our members find it all too easy to miss the second service? Or even both services? Will some of our our members find that they are now far more satisfied than they would have been before to simply watch an online service? Will there be those who discover that They really haven't missed the worship or the fellowship with their brethren at all. Now, how keen you are to maintain, or in this case also to resume, your good habits that you, Lord willing, had 
uh, prior to all of these developments, good habits of worship, ultimately it comes down to a question of zeal, your Christian zeal, grounded, of course, in the fear of God or the love of God, whichever you want to say it. And that zeal is something that we see very clearly expressed in this text. And so even though this is uh, said in connection with the Westminster on the elements of worship, uh, I want to deal with this in terms of the theme of it, uh, in terms of how that Christian zeal affects the way that we worship. And there are three points here. That first of all, it is a special zeal. Secondly, it is a vertical zeal. And thirdly, it is a horizontal zeal. So a special zeal, vertical zeal, and horizontal zeal. In terms of the special zeal, I want to note uh, and begin by looking at these words that we find in verses 42 and 46. They were continually devoting themselves, and a similar expression, day by day continuing. And in verse 47, you also have a repetition of this day by day language. So this is a, a big emphasis in the text, this idea of things that were being done day by day, uh, done continually day by day or daily. Now when you read this, you might think, well, that was great for them. Uh, sort of think of it like uh, family camp. If you've been to family camp, you come away and you say, oh, that was really great. And maybe you look forward to the next one, but you're also kind of glad that you don't have to do it every single week because you've got other things to get on with in your life. You've got work. And uh, we can't be doing those things even if we enjoy them all of the time. So surely then it would be over the top to suggest that we should do the same as what these early Christians were doing, meeting daily for worship, for instruction and for fellowship. We could not at all sustain that in our busy workaday world. In fact, I very much doubt that we would, uh, well, I suspect that we would struggle to manage uh, coping even with Calvin's Geneva. As you may know, Calvin preached twice every week and three times during the week. And uh, the fact that he did that for some, quite some time uh, shows that uh, there, were, there were people who came to it. There was a reason to do it. People came to those services and they came during the week to hear the preaching as well as they were able to do so to that extent. Uh, we also have to note along the same lines that uh, as we think about whether this is even doable for us to act in this way, we note that there is no command here, in fact, to do so. What we have here is a description of what was done at that time, followed with observations that show that the Lord blessed what they did, and as a result of that, God gave them favour with the people, and also their numbers increased as many people were converted, verse 47. And so I do want to acknowledge that there is no command here to us to do it exactly the same. But I also want to make this point that uh, when we see that there's no command, but we see that there's something that God blessed, then there is surely something here for us to learn. And something here, if we learn, that we can apply to ourselves in our situation. So I do want to acknowledge that there is something unique and something special going on in this text uh, for a number of reasons. First, because 
this, what was going on here, was part of the Feast of Weeks, the uh, Old Testament feast that was commanded by God, the Feast of Weeks. And it was also, uh, that's why where the name, uh, the, the name Pentecost is related to it, because it worked out about 50 days in total for this, uh, these celebrations, starting at the Passover and going through to Pentecost. Uh, this took uh, a 50-day celebration, which is what the word Pentecost comes from, the 50. Uh, so this was a lengthy and a major feast, a unique situation, a special situation of the Old Testament. Uh, it was a part of the Feast of Weeks, was a part of a harvest festival for harvests at that time of the year, uh, around or just after the time of the Passover, starting at the Passover. And uh, many pilgrims came to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast. People who had set aside time to be there because it was commanded by God, they set aside that time and because of that, they had or they made the opportunity to make the most of that time there and to sit under the instruction of the apostles every day for some time. That's one of the things that made it special in the context here. The other thing is that the Holy Spirit had just been poured out in greater measure in fullness at Pentecost. And it's a result of that outpouring of the Spirit. it, It is that which creates the New Testament church. So what we see here is a snapshot of the the kind of behaviour that came out of the first congregation as it was being established in Jerusalem. So that's a a description that we're being given of how they acted in the first church of Jerusalem, which came into existence because of the Lord Jesus having died on the cross, risen from the dead, and then pouring out his spirit. So uh, you could think of this as the the birthday celebration of the New Testament church. We usually, we have a a birthday celebration at the end of the first year. This birthday celebration is right at the beginning of the church's coming into existence in its New Testament form. And like a lot of parties, there's lots of food, there's lots of excitement, there are lots of events for everybody to engage in, albeit very spiritual ones. And this helped to get the early church off to a roaring start. As we read, uh, many people were uh, being uh, converted. Uh, The church got off to a roaring start and it was something that was going to be needed in the face of the the, uh, vehement attacks of Satan upon that new and seemingly vulnerable church as Satan poured out all of the stops in order to crush that church. Revelation chapter 12 gives an indication of how uh, Satan responded so viciously to Christ's death and resurrection and then to the establishing of the church and how uh, much Satan pulled out the stops to try and crush that church uh, at that stage in particular. So it's because of these special features that we can't just say, they did it this way, therefore we have to do it the same. You'll give up your jobs and we'll meet here every day. We can't say that because this is a unique situation. But we do nevertheless have to ask ourselves the question, why is this passage here? Why are we told about this unique situation and this recorded for the church of all ages, including us today? 
Not only uh, do we ask it because the passage is here, but we also note that something very similar is described in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 36. So part of this text is repeated again just a couple of chapters later. And indeed, in Acts chapter 5, we have an exploration of the consequences with the account of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, part of Satan's attack upon what was going on here. So this is a lot of emphasis in this part of the book of Acts. Well, to answer what we learn from this, I'd like to put this forward. That is to say that these two passages, the one here, our text, and the somewhat similar one in Acts chapter 4, these two passages show us the kind of excitement and the kind of zeal that comes from knowing Christ, Christ crucified and risen, and which comes from being filled with his spirit when the spirit's poured out after Pentecost. The exact form, I want to suggest, the exact form in which that zeal is expressed may vary according to circumstances and opportunity. But the essential nature of that zeal is the same, whether it is in this time, uh, as we read here, or whether in Calvin's Geneva, or whether in the Reformed Church of Silverstream today. And yet the sad thing is that that kind of zeal we often see more in new converts than we do in the old tired ones. And that's a sad thing, that perhaps you've experienced that too, that initial burst of zeal can very easily wane over time. Zeal for worship, zeal to study and to hear the word of God, zeal for Christian fellowship. These things can wane if we are not careful because they are things that need to be fed and they need to, zeal needs to be watered and it also needs to be defended. And one of the things that can make it wane, I would suggest, is uh, the kind of restrictions that we've had uh, recently where our previous good habits are broken down by those circumstances, circumstances in God's providence out of our control to a large extent. But in circumstances like that, we disrupt, our good habits are disrupted and the danger is that we don't find them back again if we're not careful. Another significant point in this text is the insight it gives us into the ordinary elements of worship. Because although there are extraordinary things going on here in this text, nevertheless, the zeal to hear the word of God and to respond to the word of God and the zeal to do so in the company of fellow believers to worship together, those things we have in common uh, with the church's worship today and in all times. So in our ordinary worship services, we find elements of worship that point us in exactly the same direction and arise out of the same zeal as what we find in this text. That focus on God's word, on responding to it, and on encouraging one another to do the same. Uh, another thing that we could say about this uh, extraordinary worship, but also the ordinary worship each week, is that this is, uh, in a way, it is a breaking into this age, into this world, of the heavenly worship. Because of the coming of Christ, his death, his resurrection, and the pouring out of his spirit, 
the heavenly worship of the kind we read here in the book of Revelation, that kind of zeal that we see of the people worshipping God in heaven, breaks into this world and forms much the same pattern with the same kind of elements, essentially, as it does in heaven, as described in Revelation. Which is essentially the same pattern of worship and the same kind of elements, more or less, as what we find in Old Testament worship. That's also what we find going on here in Acts 2 and what we see in our worship today. There are some differences, but for the most part, the basic elements and the zeal that lies behind it It is a heavenly zeal and a heavenly worship breaking into this present time. The great congregation in heaven, their worship involves perfect fear, perfect love of God, perfect zeal for his name and perfect love for each other, for God's people. And this is now mirrored in the fallen world because of Christ and wherever Christ and his spirit do their work. And that's what we find reflected here in this passage and also in our own worship. Well, to be more specific about what that zeal looks like, I want to consider the aspects that are singled out here in our text as to their vertical nature. In other words, in our relationship and our worship towards the Lord above. Second point, vertical zeal. Three vertical elements are singled out here. Firstly, we read that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, Then also they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. And I'll say a little bit about that in a moment. And they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now, to be fair, we don't know exactly what this all entailed. We do know that they met in the temple and they met from house to house, verse 46. We don't know for sure whether the house meetings, we know more about the temple worship, but the house meetings were they additional uh, corporate worship services with the sermons and with congregational prayers and with the breaking of bread referring to the Lord's Supper or perhaps the Lord's Supper and a love feast? Or were they meeting for their more formal corporate worship in the, uh, in the temple and then having something more like fellowship meetings in midweek in the houses every day uh, where they would have instruction and uh, times of prayer and also share their meals together, uh, or something in between that. We're not sure exactly. But what we do see here, and I think this is the important part of it, we do see that these new converts were so filled with zeal for God's word that they simply could not get enough of it. And that's the main point here. That's where that zeal, that heavenly zeal, if you like, that's where it leads God's people, unless we crush it in our own lives, by our own negligence and apathy. That zeal that means you want to take and make the use of every opportunity you can. You have two services, then you go to two services, because that's two opportunities. You have midweek Bible studies, you go to those Bible studies You have men's breakfast, you go to men's breakfast and so forth, if you can, if opportunity arises, because the zeal to have that instruction in God's word is there. 
They were so filled with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord that they couldn't get enough prayer. They were so uh, filled with um, uh, that desire for fellowship with each other that they couldn't get enough of that time together enjoying that fellowship. question is then, do you have that zeal to hear God's word, to be fed by it, to learn from it? Do you have that zeal to give praise and thanks to God every opportunity you can? Even though our situation may not lend itself to seven days of doing those kind of things in a concerted way, but do you have the zeal that leads you in that direction as much as you can? Well, I guess... You are here at the second service because you do have a sense of that. But how will our churches fare collectively now that the COVID rules are relaxing? No doubt you've heard the saying that onces tend to become nonces, and if they don't, well, maybe their children do. And I would suggest that the reason for that is because the issue comes down again to zeal or lack thereof. Of course, there can be legitimate reasons, health reasons and so forth, while people are not able to go to all of these things regularly or as much as they might like. But if the zeal that we see evidenced here is lacking, then there's not much of a barrier in a person's life to a gradual slide over time into less and less attendance, even to non-attendance, and even if they don't experience that in their own life, but keep going because of custom and tradition, habit, even if they keep going, if that zeal is lacking, and if that zeal is not seen, then it's not a very good witness to one's children or to others. This uh, witness of zeal for God's word, this Zeal for the word, to hear the word preached. Zeal to read the Bible at home. This is a vital and a powerful witness. Of course, you can stay home and you can watch a service, but it's not the same as being part of the assembly. It's a congregation. And the com part of the word congregation is a word that means with. It is the assembly of God's people with and alongside each other, gathered in the same place at the same time, side by side hearing the word and side by side responding with one loud voice, with one loud amen. No doubt it's easy to find excuses. I'm tired. I have young children. I might catch COVID. Well, no doubt the pilgrims in Jerusalem could have come up with similar excuses too. Uh, I have a farm I need to get back to. I'm uh, weary. It was such a long journey here and it's going to be a long journey back. But they didn't because zeal trumps excuses. I've just indicated that watching a service on TV on a TV screen is not the same thing as being in the assembly. Being in the assembly itself, in the congregational worship service. In the third and final point, we see another reason why. Because Christian zeal should also be expressed in horizontal relationships with our brethren. And here in this passage, we find 
two aspects of that horizontal zeal. They were continually devoting themselves to fellowship, verse 42, and they were all together and had all things in common, verses 44 and 45. And chapter 4, verse 32 to 37 also expands a little bit more on that having all things in common. As to the fellowship, the word means sharing. That fairly well-known biblical word koinonia means a sharing, essentially. And it doesn't mean just sharing a nice feeling when we get together and we can chat with our friends over coffee afterwards, maybe catch up with our relatives as well. Any club could claim that kind of sharing or fellowship of uh, enjoying company and having a nice time together and as far as the sharing of other things, um, uh, property and money and so on, well, uh, hippie communes are also fairly well known for sharing things around of that kind too. So uh, we're not talking about those kind of things, the sharing of nice feelings and the sharing of uh, money and goods. Christian fellowship may be defined as a joint participation in the knowledge of Christ and in the knowledge of his benefits and his blessings brought about by the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, by the uh, work of his Holy Spirit poured out and the ministry of his word. And that is a sharing that occurs not only after the worship service. We don't only have fellowship when we go out for coffee afterwards in the hall or when we talk in the churchyard. That sharing is taking place right now in the worship service when side by side we have that joint participation in the knowledge of Christ and his benefits. Now the extent of this fellowship in Acts 2 is extraordinary. They continued day by day with one mind, verse 46. That uh, might uh, sound like a difficult thing to us. Um, A church where everybody's of one mind, Seems all too rare, doesn't it? And it didn't last to that degree. With that high degree, it didn't last very long in the New Testament either. It wasn't long before problems arose, abuses arose, divisions arose. Even the love feast of all things, uh, that great expression that they had of their oneness and their sharing, that actually became a cause for further divisions to such an extent that it was soon separated from the Lord's Supper and probably ended up becoming what we have now with congregational meals at uh, other times between services or uh, during the week. But what we have here is a picture of the kind of fellowship that has dropped down into this world from heaven through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, and the pouring out of his spirit, the ministry of his word as well. We have a picture of the kind of fellowship and the kind of sharing that that creates. And we have it in a kind of ideal expression here. With this little snapshot, we see how good it can be, even if it didn't last that good for so long at that time and is difficult to find today. Nevertheless, we have an idea of what it looks like in its most ideal expression that you can have in this world so that we know what to aim for in our all too often broken situations. We see here with this snapshot 
what zeal for fellow saints can look like and we see what life will be like with each other as we're all worshipping God together in the next life so that we could try and work on maximising those things now rather than not paying it any attention or being satisfied with a minimal expression. One particular expression of this love, care and sharing with brethren was the selling of property by wealthier members to help support uh, the uh, pilgrims who were staying on in Jerusalem and other needy people, either in or out of the church. This is not communism, as I've said before. Uh, Some, but not all, sold their property. We read that they met house to house, so some, some people must have kept their houses or they wouldn't have been able to do that. So not everybody sold property, but some did, and they sold it as need arose, and it was distributed in proportion to need, rather, and it was strictly voluntary, rather than this being some kind of uh, state-imposed uh, levelling, one-size-fits-all levelling that uh, governments uh, so often fall into. We also see that, uh, as I mentioned, that others uh, uh, kept their houses, but they used them in order to serve God so that the church could go house to house. Again, this is an extraordinary scene, an extraordinary show of love, care and support in an extraordinary situation, but it gives us a clear picture of how far the love and care of brethren is willing to go when we're filled with gratitude to the Lord for his work and filled with his spirit and filled with the love of his people and zeal for his name. 1 John 3 verse 17 still applies in our ordinary situations. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him How does the love of God abide in him? Congregation, every angle in this text points in the same direction. It points us to a joy and an excitement in knowing Christ and a zeal in responding to what we know, both vertically in our hearing instruction of the Lord and responding to that with praise and thanksgiving and horizontally in our interactions with each other. Striving to do these things as much as possible in our circumstances rather than as little, as little as we can get away with. Now is a good time for us to examine ourselves for this zeal and if necessary to do a reset. And even if you personally do not need that reset because you already have that zeal and you're already maximising these things, surely our churches do need it. Just consider levels of attendance in second services in our churches, even before COVID. Zealous hearts, zealous for the Lord and his church, I would suggest to you that they are going to be needed for the survival of the Reformed Churches of New Zealand in what could be very difficult years ahead, but also needed for our own personal relationship with the Lord. You see Westminster 21.5, and I said I'd I'd, uh, make an an application of this to the... um, uh, and an explanation as to where this ties in with the Westminster. We've seen it already with the indication of those 
elements of worship that come up here, they come up in the Old Testament, they come up in the worship of heaven and in regular worship services as well. But there's another thing that's important about this. We ought not to read Westminster 21.5 as simply a list of the elements that we need to have a correct and lawful worship service. So if you've got those things, if you tick those boxes, everything's okay. Rather, this should be read in the light of our text. As a description in Westminster 21.5 with that list of elements, a description of what we crave, what we want to take part in in our worship when we are filled with zeal for the name of the Lord, filled with a sense of excitement and joy over the gospel, and filled with a love for the church, the body and bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that our post-COVID RCNZ looks like that. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that uh, zeal for your name is something that uh, fluctuates and there may be times when it goes uh, down for quite a time. We pray, therefore, that you would continue to fill us with that zeal for your name, for your word, for your church. Will you fill us with a desire to learn from the preaching of your word and teaching and reading of your word? Will you also uh, give us a, a hunger for that as much as we can? A strong desire also for Christian fellowship? An earnest desire to respond to these things that you give to us, to respond to your grace with prayer, with praise, with thanksgiving, with worship, also with obedience and good works. And so, Father, will you make us a witness to others, a good witness to others, to encourage each other, a witness to the next generation, to the younger people, and also a witness to outsiders. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The worship of the church on earth reflects the worship of the church in heaven and hymn 469 also has something to say about that heavenly worship. We'll stand to sing it, number 469, and afterwards would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology.
blessing as our doxology, we'll sing number 231 from the Psalter Hymnal, 231. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.